Amen. You guys can be seated. We're so thankful to have you here today. If you have your Bibles open, if you would, to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And as you're turning there, we'll introduce myself. We'll introduce Adam and his lovely wife, Ari, who are here this morning. And uh, really, honestly, so thankful to be invited to preach here uh, this morning. Uh, Adam Davis and his wife Ari are members at Highland. Uh, Adam leads worship for us there occasionally. His wife is involved in the children's ministry there. Uh, they have two young kids, Abigail and Elijah, uh, and who are an absolute delight. And I've actually known Adam uh, since he was just a kid, when he was in high school, I think, is when we met. Um, I was a pastor in Southern California. He was in the ministry there. Uh, eventually, the Lord took him to uh, Tacoma, Washington, or Spokane, Washington, Spokane, Washington, where he attended the Moody uh, Bible Institute there in Spokane. Uh, eventually, just through a whole number of uh, a series of events, uh, the Lord put Adam and Ari together uh, and then moved them here to Denver. Uh, when I found out that they were moving to Denver, I was already pastoring here at Highland in Westminster. Uh, found out Adam was going to be in town. I, we pretty much talked, and I told him, you don't have any other choice in churches. You're going to attend Highland. And so congratulations. Come to Highland and help us to serve there. Uh, they've been there the last several years. And... Um, uh, I'm so thankful now uh, that Adam has agreed and is willing now to lead worship here at Trinity for the summer. Um, I've asked him to kind of fill the gap until we can get some more conclusive answers figured out. Uh, I know that you guys have enjoyed Rebecca's ministry uh, for the last couple of years, I think. She said she's been here and uh, has done a great job. And honestly, as you have opportunity to... Did I cut out? Am I still on? Okay. Uh, as you have opportunities to... Um, uh, to thank her, uh, and as you see her, and I think that she'll be, something is going on, Nathan, I'm, I'm sorry, it's going in and out somewhere. Is, is it still on? Yeah. It's off, right? It's definitely off. <laughs> this is still on, that is not muted. Is it okay? I don't know what's going on. That's okay. All right. Uh, as you have opportunity, to, can you guys in the back hear me if I just power through? Yeah? Uh, as you have opportunities to thank Rebecca for her ministry here and just for her faithfulness, I know that this was not necessarily her home church. Uh, she attends another church here in town. Uh, she has just faithfully served here at Trinity. She believes in what's going on here and what the Lord is doing here. Uh, and so I am thankful for There we go. How's that? Okay, and I'll just hold still. It's counterintuitive for me. Normally, I'm a walker, but uh, I'll make sure that I stay in front of the mic here. Uh, as you have opportunities, like I was saying, to thank Rebecca for her ministry here, please do so. Uh, I know that she has just faithfully and humbly served and has been so gracious as well. In this transition, uh, Adam and Ari, like I said, are going to attend here for the summer. Uh, he will lead worship here for the summer, and then uh, we'll kind of see what happens after that. Uh, my name is uh, Danny Gardner. I'm the senior pastor at Highland, which is uh, a Baptist church on the other side of town. We're in Westminster, right next to Westminster City Hall, 92nd and Sheridan are our basic cross streets there. 
Uh, I've been the senior pastor there for seven years. I've been on staff there for going on nine years. Um, my wife's name is Hallie. She's down here in the front row. Uh, she and I have been married better than 20 years. We've got three sons, Pearson, Zach, and Chase. Pearson just graduated from college. He's 21 years old, uh, just got engaged a couple of months ago as well. We are excited for him. Uh, my, young, my, my middle son, Zach, is graduating from high school on Tuesday. Uh, he goes to the Summit Academy, which is a charter school in Broomfield. Uh, and then my youngest son, Chase, is in the seventh grade, just finished seventh grade, is now going into the eighth grade. He's 13 years old, uh, and they're all here, uh, and uh, just in support, not only of me, but of all of you as well. Uh, and then my mom, Marilyn, is here as well. Uh, she lives with us, with our family full-time, so you can meet her uh, after the service is done. She lives with us. Uh, I lost my dad 15 years ago to prostate cancer, and from that point forward, my mom has lived with our family uh, I have additional family here in town as well. My sister, uh, who is two years younger than I, uh, lives in Thornton. Her husband is a computer software engineer. He works for Ball Engineering uh, in Boulder, and uh, they also attend Highland. In fact, he is on our board of trustees. Uh, also uh, attending here and just kind of visiting in support uh, and love is Henry uh, and Val Salia. Henry is down here on the front. Henry is the chairman of our elder board, uh, as well as Tom and Linda Miller uh, back here. Tom is also on our elder board, uh, and um, you guys will kind of get to know them as, as we uh, progress and our churches partner together. I, I think also, well, no, also visiting, look at that. Lori and Kurt Wentz are right over there. So Lori is our office manager. Uh, and I'll tell you why it's important for you to get to know Lori, uh, because Lori's the one who picks up the phone. Every time you call Highland Baptist Church, Lori is the one who picks up. Uh, Lori is the one who answers almost all of the questions that people have at the church uh, that are not doctrinally related. If they're Bible questions, typically I refer those to another pastor on our side. I'm not just kidding. Uh, I typically will answer those. But Lori, uh, anything administrative at the church, including our financials, Lori has the, uh, the answers to. Uh, and her husband, Kurt, who has also served on our board, he works for the city of Westminster. Uh, down here in the front, Phil and Nancy Mitchell. Uh, and Phil works for Rocky Mountain, Conver Rocky Mountain Church Network, uh, which is the region's um, kind of group of the conservative Baptists. Uh, and so he works for John Kraft, whom many of you guys know. Um, and Phil and I have become good friends uh, over the last couple of years as he's given us opportunity to get to know one another. Uh, and they attend another church here in town, and so I'm thankful to have them here as well. Uh, Romans chapter 5. Let me, let me tell you, we're, we're going to read it in just a moment. I'm going to preach through God's Word, and then uh, after we're done with that, uh, I'm going to dismiss uh, anybody who would like to go once the preaching of the Word is done, and we'll close in a song. Uh, when that's finished, though, I'm going to give you guys kind of where we're at in terms of the church plant that we've been talking about. You guys all voted on a couple of months ago. I'll tell you where we're at, what the timeline is, what has held us up a little bit, why things have slowed down a little bit and seemed like they may have stalled. Um, I'll tell you what's going on there and then kind of what our plan is moving forward so that you guys can uh, have an idea of, of what things will look like in the future. Honestly, you guys, I cannot wait. I can't wait to see what the Lord does here at Trinity. Uh, there is progression. Uh, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, we are uh, so excited to partner together with this church to plant a, uh, really a new gospel work here. Uh, excited to see who the Lord will bring. And so uh, let me pray. Um, actually, you know what? Let me read God's word first. And it's, it's the tradition in our church to stand as I read God's word. And so I'm going to ask you guys to stand in honor of God's word as I read Romans chapter 5 and verses 1 through 11. Romans 5 verses 1 through 11. Beginning in verse 1, the word of God says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we've been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Would you pray with me, eternal God? The heavens declare your glory and the earth proclaims your handiwork. Your presence fills the universe. You have made us, Lord, and we are yours. You have granted to us life and joy and every, every other blessing, and we thank you. We ask this morning that you give us understanding as we look to your word. May it not return void in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church. Well, you can be seated. You'll notice the very first word in the very first verse, in chapter 5 and verse 1, the first word, therefore, you'll know that what that means is that everything we've just read is contingent upon what has taken place in chapter 4. At the end, through chapter 4, the author of Romans has done a thorough job explaining what we believe, that we have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, and not by works, we would say, and not by ceremonies, we would say, and not by rules, we would say, and not even by knowledge, but rather by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, he explains what we believe. In chapter 5, he explains why we believe it. The benefits obtained by those in Jesus Christ only come, this says, to those who have been justified. And in fact, verse 1, it even says, since we have been justified by faith. In other words, the author is asking, now that I have been made just as if I'd never sinned, now that we have been made righteous, now that we are saved, what is true of me? Are there any benefits to knowing Jesus? So let me put that question to you, friends. Are there any benefits to knowing Jesus? Are you allowed to talk in this church? Is that all right? We can do this together. This could be a, a group project as we go through the text. Are there some benefits to knowing the Lord? Yes. If there are no benefits, then what are we all doing here? <laughs> right? There might be better things to do on a sunny Sunday morning. If there are no benefits at all, and believe me, our unsaved neighbors, friends, coworkers, family members, sports teammates, everything else, that they think there are no benefits to knowing Jesus, which is why they haven't joined us this morning. We who have gathered in the name of Christ know that there are benefits in, in our relationship with him. Isn't that true? Turn with me, if you would, or hold your finger in Romans chapter 5, and turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 103. Look at what the psalmist says, Psalm 103. What a passage this is going to be. 
David, the king of Israel, who knew the Lord, says in Psalm 103 in verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Well, you say, like what? What benefits you got, King David? What benefits are you talking about? Look what he says, verse 3. Well, he forgives your iniquity. <laughs> That's pretty beneficial. <laughs> Amen? Uh, he heals your diseases. Uh, that is a pretty big benefit. He redeems your life from the pit. Oh, man, if we had opportunity to share testimonies this morning. Anybody in here lived in the pit? Anybody in here saved out of the pit? You just thought, man, I was wallowing around in the mud. And the Lord Jesus rescued me out of the mud, out of the pit. That's a pretty big benefit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. That's a benefit. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. There are some benefits to knowing the Lord. Amen? Amen. We'll go back to Romans chapter 5. We have been justified by faith. We have some benefits. And, and these answer the question, not just what you believe, but church, they answer the question why you believe. Have you ever stopped and just answered, thought about that? Why do I believe? Why do I follow Christ? Why do I worship twice a week with other believers on Wednesdays and Sundays? Why do I give of my resources, my talents, my finances? Why do I write offering checks? Why do I do that? If your kids or your grandkids were to come to you one day and ask, why do you follow the Lord? We better have an answer ready for that. Why it's good to know the, why it's good to know the Lord if we're ever asked, why in the world would you partner together with another church in town to plant a new gospel work? Why would you do that? We'd better have an answer ready, amen? I've already been confronted with that question as Henry and I were discussing this whole opportunity with a lawyer as we are drawing up contracts and making sure everything is legal and doing all of that stuff. We've retained a legal team. Uh, and as I'm explaining to this gal who is a lawyer, she specializes in contracts like this, I began to explain to her, here's what we're going to do. Here's what we've agreed to give. Here's what we've agreed to put forward. And here's what Trinity is going to do. And at the end of it, you guys, she was baffled. She said, wait a minute, I just want to understand, Danny. So when is the church going to pay you guys back? Well, never. She's like, wait, what? Well, it's not a loan, right? I'm explaining to her the same thing I explained to you guys. That no, actually, if this whole thing works, financially speaking, Highland's going to take a massive loss <laughs> for the kingdom. Amen? I mean, for the gospel, it's not our money anyway. Amen, church? I mean, that's how it works. That's what the kingdom is about. And as you have opportunities to explain what the Lord is going to do at Trinity, and you get to, you get to tell the story about how God will move, and why there are these new families coming, and why there's life, and why there's, uh, you know, uh, uh, just the whole thing, that this new atmosphere and this new enthusiasm, as you begin to explain that story to other people, you will get to explain why, why we do the things we do. Not just what we do, but why we do them. And our text this morning answers those questions. Why you believe? Why? Because of all the benefits I get through belief. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5 does something 
really remarkable when he just lists six blessings that the justified have in Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, then these six blessings apply to you right now. And these six blessings should occupy so much space in our lives that they would become life-defining. This should be the reputation even of the church. You know, it's interesting that the church is blamed for many of society's ills. We are considered at times backward thinkers. We are considered morally repugnant. We're considered unfeeling, uncaring, anti-intellectual. Is this not the reputation we have? Unloving, warmongers. We are viewed as intolerant. We are viewed oftentimes as women haters. Uh, we are viewed as people who love guns more than people, right? I've, I've heard these accusations slung against Christians. The, the most interesting part of that reputation is that based on what we have in Christ, based on Romans chapter 5, uh, those things should be furthest from the truth. We all know that being justified means we go to heaven instead of hell. We know that, that the sky, according to right, the, the, the hymn that we always sing, it is well with my soul, the sky, not the grave, is our goal. But there are also some benefits that we enjoy now today. Benefits which will change the way we live today. That if we understand what is actually ours in Christ will actually become life-defining. Six reasons to believe. Six reasons not to bail on the church. Six links in the chain, if you want to call them this. Six links in the chain which bind us to God. And you'll notice here the verb tense throughout. Notice in verse 1 it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. What are the next two words? It says we have. Do you notice that? Verse 2, we have. It's present tense. It's not we will have, future tense. It's not we had, past tense. It's present tense. We have. We have. Verse 3 says we rejoice. We have, verse 9 says. We have, verse 11 says. We enjoy these benefits today. We have them right now. And if you are in Christ, then these six links in that chain are true of you right now. Let's go through them. The first link in that chain which binds us to Christ is that we have peace with God. Look at verse 1. We've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and honestly, friends, would that not have been enough? What if that were the only one? That one would have been enough. Wouldn't have been? I mean, what, what other ones do you need? <laughs> there are five more, okay? But just that one. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, which means before we knew Christ, what was true? We didn't have peace. What did we have? We were at war. Uh, those are the only two options, aren't they? Uh, peace can be simply defined as the ending of a state of war. It is a state of both physical and spiritual being that the world has never experienced. I know the world talks about peace all the time, but listen, friends, they don't know what peace is. They don't know what peace is. Why? Because they don't know the Prince of Peace. It was the Bible itself that defines Jesus as the peace giver, the peace maker. He is the one who brought peace and offers peace. And in fact, he is himself the prince of peace. Can anybody think of any verses which would state that truth? Can you think of some? I'm getting all the chuckles from the Highland people down here. What about the rest of you guys? Can you think of, are there some, is there not a verse that talks about him being the prince of peace? 
for unto us a child is born, right? Don't you just want to break into song? Yes, he's the Prince of Peace. He's a wonderful counselor. He is almighty God. He is the everlasting Father. And he is what? The Prince of Peace. That day when all those shepherds were tending their flocks by night and Jesus was born, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, was born to all of those shepherds, this angelic choir suddenly appears and freaks them all out. Do you remember this? They all thought we are going to die. It went from dark to bright. Heaven's glory shone down on these shepherds and these angels begin to sing. Do you remember what they sang? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. The leading attribute of the birth of the son of Jesus. He came to bring peace peace. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you were alienated. We were foreigners. We didn't belong. We had no country. We didn't have passports is what he's saying. You had no place to belong. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace. He is our peace who has made us both one, and he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Within that first century church in Ephesus, there were two groups. There were Gentiles and Jews, and the two of them could not get along. They couldn't get along. And Jesus says, you know what he's done? The Lord Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, making of these two men one man. There is no more dividing wall anymore. You guys, listen, at some point, at some point, there's a group of Highland people that are going to come, and they're no longer going to count themselves Highland people. They're going to come and join you, and you plus them are going to create one new man. Right? From two will become one, one new church, not Highland, not Trinity, but something new. And to God be the glory for all of it. But you can see there how that's kind of a tangible reminder of what the Lord Jesus has done. He takes two groups and he says, there's no longer a dividing wall of hostility. Now there is one. There is peace between the two. And listen, church, if you are in Christ, then you have peace with God. You're not waiting on it. You're not going to have peace with God someday. You have it right now. And so let me ask you the question, are you living as though you're at peace? Are you living as though you're at peace? Or what might be the opposite of peaceful living would be frantic living? Anxiety, riddled living, hurried, scrambling, fearful. Fearful living is the opposite of peaceful living. We live in uncertain times, do we not? We're coming up on elections again. <laughs> it seems like there's always elections. Uh, but is it not a temptation for God's people to worry? What will happen? What will happen if a certain person gets elected or a certain person gets reelected or if things don't go the way that I want or if things don't go the way that I vote? What will happen? What will happen? What will happen? Things seem out of control but not for the person who is at peace. You have peace with the Lord Jesus Christ. It was John Phillips, J.B. Phillips. Some of you maybe are familiar with his commentaries who said, you are at peace with God. You possess something the world cannot give and cannot take away. <laughs> Honestly, it doesn't matter who fills what office, 
who the Lord and his sovereign plan appoints to what office, and what things pass and what things don't pass, that peace can never be taken away because it is found in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. You have peace with God. Notice second in verse 2. You have access. You have access to God. Verse 2, through him. We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. You have access. The word for access in the Greek language, original language, literally means to be brought in or to make an introduction. You've been introduced to somebody new. As it's used here in verse 2, the thought is it's genuine acceptance with God and the enjoyment of his grace. You've been brought into his presence, given access, and now get to enjoy his presence. We've been introduced almost by invitation. The story goes that a little boy once stood outside the gates of Buckingham Palace in London. He wanted to talk to the king. But this little boy was sternly rebuked by the guard at the gate. And so this little boy rubbed his grimy hand, his dirty little hand against his cheek to wipe away a tear he'd been denied. Just then, along came a well-dressed man who asked the boy to explain his trouble. Why are you crying, the man asked. The little boy explained his story. I want to go talk to the king, but he won't give me an audience, and this soldier won't let me pass. When the well-dressed man heard the story, the man smiled and said, Here, hold my hand. He said, I'll get you in. Never mind these soldiers. The little boy reached up and took the hand of the man, and to his surprise, saw that the soldiers leaped to attention and even presented arms as he approached the guards, holding the hand of his newfound friend. Holding this guy's hand, he suddenly got a little more respect. Past the guards, he was led through wide-flung doors, on through a glittering throng of people, right up to the throne of the king. It turns out the little boy had taken the hand of the Prince of Wales the king's own son. And through the prince, the boy gained access to the king. Again, J.B. Phillips has said, it is a glorious thing to have acceptance, to know that the war is over and that God no longer looks upon us with disfavor and wrath. How good it is to have peace with God, right? We all just said amen to that. But even far better, John Phillips says, even far better to have access uh, not only have we been given peace and then been left alone, now the Lord invites us into his presence. Consider how crazy, how counterintuitive that is. He's declared peace over us. But make no mistake, church, we were his enemies. We were at war with him before that peace was declared. And now God goes so far as not only to declare peace between us and him, but he actually says, I'm inviting you in. We have taken the pierced hand of the king's own son and so now have that access to the Lord's throne. It's Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16 that says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have been given an invitation like, like, a, like a skeleton key. Right? Do you guys remember those? Like the master key. Some keys only open certain things. The master key opens what? Everything. There's no doors. The master key does not open. And this says that in Christ, we have been given the master key to the presence of God himself. We have the security code to the presence of God where we are not only allowed to go, but Hebrews 4 says we are actually encouraged to come and bring our requests. What a privilege that is. And let me ask, how many of us are using the key. 
You can come to the Lord anytime you want. Amen? What if we never did? How foolish of us would it be if we had access to the creator and sustainer of the universe and he encouraged us and said, come, you can come anytime you want. By the blood of Jesus, you are allowed. I've given you the key. Why won't you come? Are we using the key that we've been given in Christ? Third, not only do we have peace and access, but look at this third blessing. What a benefit. We have hope. And even more than that, we have hope in the midst of suffering. Continue in verse 2. It says, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We have hope even in the midst of suffering, and that word for suffering is also translated tribulations throughout the New Testament. It's used in all kinds of different passages. In fact, it's the same exact word that is used in Revelation 7 of the great tribulation. That seven-year period following the rapture of the church where the wrath of God will be poured out unsparingly on those who have rebelled against him, the great tribulation. And this says that even in the midst of tribulations and trials and sufferings like that, you can still rejoice in hope. It's the Greek word, that word for suffering, thlipsis. Thlipsis, it has the underlying meaning of being under pressure. It's being squeezed. It's the word that was used uh, when olives were pressed so that oil would be extracted. If you were to make, if you were, if you owned a vineyard and you were to harvest your grapes and put those grapes into the, the grape press and squeeze those grapes out and the juice is coming out, that's the word, flipsis. It is the squeezing of grapes. You guys all remember the I Love Lucy episode where she and her buddy jump into the vat, right? And they're scrambling around on these grapes and they're mushing the grapes. That's flipsis. When we're being stepped on squeezed so that the oil, the juice is running out. <laughs> that's the word that's used. Even if you're being squeezed, it says the Lord is using that pressure to extract something good from you. And in fact, the next couple of verses say there are three things, three things that is coming out of you as you're being squeezed. Three things that that suffering produces. Can you guys find them? Why don't you read it again? Verses 3, 4, and 5. See if you can find those three things. Sufferings produce something, which produces something, which produces something. You guys all see it? What are they? Okay. Endurance or perseverance, character, and hope. Hope is produced when there is juice extracted. <laughs> and without that suffering, without that squeezing, why would we hope for the next life at all? Without that squeezing, we might become a little bit comfortable here. Isn't that true? Without that pressure, without that suffering, why would we long for heaven? And in fact, without any suffering at all on this earth, we might be more inclined to stay. You say, well, Lord, it's comfortable here. I, I actually, I kind of like it here. I don't want to go. And the Lord says, no, this world is not your what? Home. We sing the song, 
But how can I ensure that Danny Gardner looks forward to heaven? I know what I'll do. I'll squeeze him. Squeeze him. And notice the three things that it produces, that endurance. Endurance is the same word as perseverance. Some of your translations even say that the sufferings allow us to run our spiritual race farther and longer, just like if we were training for a marathon. I was at Highland this morning at our 8 a.m. service. There was a young man who said that his friend is training for a marathon. And I thought, why in the world would you do that? What a horrible idea. I don't even want to drive 26 miles, let alone run 26 miles. Can I get an amen? Like, that's a good spot for an amen. Man, I don't want to run 26 miles. Well, how can you ensure that you will finish the race? The only way to ensure that is to train and to train diligently, to push yourself. And that's the word that's used, endurance and perseverance. You can run the race farther and longer. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 says, Since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And then it says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That suffering, that squeezing produces endurance. Endurance, it says, produces character. The godly character, uh, your godly character is the proof of your salvation. The term was used often of uh, testing precious metals to determine their quality. The gold and silver would be refined in the fire so that the dross, all of those impurities were removed. What the smelter, as he scraped off that top layer, all of the dross, what he was left with was only what was pure. And so also does God use sufferings to test our quality and to purify us. That endurance produces character, and then character produces hope. And the end product of tribulations is eternal hope that we would look forward to the next life with enthusiasm. You know, Philippians chapter 3 says that we are not citizens of this earth. We are citizens of where? Heaven. And from there, you guys know how it ends? From there, we eagerly await a Savior. We eagerly await. <laughs> I know that we say, we'll say things like that. Well, we're, this world is not our home. We're not citizens of earth anyway. Uh, we're citizens of heaven, but are you eagerly waiting? Eagerly. I can't wait. I can't wait to see the Lord. Church, listen, friends, do not despair when tribulations come. Sufferings are never wasted. The Lord has brought every single one of those trials to prove your faith, to produce in you a godly character. And in fact, this says that that hope, that hope that it is producing in you will not put you to shame. Look again at verse 5. Hope doesn't put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You ever wonder if heaven will be worth it? I know we're all looking forward to that, but do you ever wonder, is it actually going to be as good as the Bible lets on? That same phrase in verse 5, hope does not put us to shame. That same exact phrase could be translated, hope does not disappoint us. Do you ever wonder if you're going to be disappointed? 
if the promises of God really are as good as they're cracked up to be? Do you wonder on that day if the sacrifices you're making right now for the kingdom will be worth the reward? Do you ever wonder if as you are ushered into the kingdom, that day that you draw your last earthly breath and cross through the veil, that thin veil, and it is such a thin veil, which separates this life from the next, do you wonder as you pass over and now get to see heaven for the first time, there it is, you're ushered into heaven on that day. If you will look around on that day and respond with, eh. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's nice. You know, I mean, it's nice. I, you know, but I've seen better. I mean, Rocky Mountain National Park, that is majestic, you know. But this, I mean, it's nice. It's nice. I, I mean, I'd vacation there. I don't know if I'd want to live here. Like, do you ever wonder, am I going to be disappointed? You guys all are familiar probably with the name Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China in the mid-19th century. He left his native England at the tender age of 21 years was when he became a missionary to China. He packed his bags and left for China, uh, same age as my oldest son. I can't even imagine him doing that already at such a young age. Hudson Taylor had only been saved himself six years prior. Saved when he was 15, becomes a missionary to China when he's 21. He spent those first six years of his Christian life diligently preparing for the mission field, he began studying Mandarin, learning basic medicine, immersing himself in Bible study and prayer. When he arrived at the Chinese port, which was his destination, he disembarked on what he thought would be the first steps of an entire life spent in this new country. He determined to do something that no British missionaries did at the time. He, he kind of created a new missions paradigm, which we're familiar with now. But listen, friends, nobody had ever done it before. Normally, when missionaries move from one country, ascending country like Great Britain to somewhere else, ascending country like the United States, we're the biggest ascending country now in the world. When they moved from the United States to somewhere else, normally they would stay Americans. They would bring their culture, their language, all of that with them. But when Hudson Taylor got to China, he said, I'm not doing that. I'm not staying British. I'm becoming Chinese. And in fact, he not only learned to speak their language, he began dressing like the men of his time. He grew his hair out and put it into braids the way that the men in China did. He wanted to become in every way that was permissible by God's word. He wanted to become like them in order to reach them. He eventually mastered the Chinese language and culture so that he could reach the interior of China for the gospel, uh, something which had literally never been done before. He founded what we know today as China Inland Mission. He distributed gospel tracts in Chinese. It had never been done. He planted a small church in an inland city, a church that spoke Chinese. At one point, he lost his financial support from England. He decided to stay anyway, trusting God for his provision. If you read his biography, which I encourage you to do, it's called Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. One of his grandsons wrote it. Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret, it says that he determined never to ask for help from anyone else other than God. He loses his financial support. And you guys know there's nothing inherently wrong with missionaries asking for financial support. There's nothing wrong with getting support letters in the mail as all of our young people are going off and we've got grandkids going on missions trips. We're going to Honduras for two weeks. Grandma, would you support me? There's nothing wrong with doing that. Hudson Taylor, though, made this personal commitment between he and the Lord. He just said, I'm never going to ask for a penny. 
from anyone other than God. Because after all, if he is the great provider, who else needs to know? Isn't that crazy? It's crazy. He did things that nobody else did. I wish I could tell more of his story, but for the sake of time, allow me to skip ahead. Taylor became extremely ill at points in his ministry, even being forced at times to return to England to recover. He would have to come back to Great Britain to get the medicine and other things, which he was always reluctant to do. While in England, he began a Bible translation work into Chinese. He eventually got married. He would return to China with his wife and his five children, ever focused on the work. Hudson Taylor said this. He said, China is not to be won for Christ by quiet, ease-loving men and women. In other words, if you like being comfortable, just stay home. (laughs) That's what he said. The stamp of men and women we need is such as will put Jesus, China, and souls, first and foremost, in everything and at every time, Even life itself must become secondary. You must not even cling to this earthly life. If you're afraid you're going to get sick and die, China is not for you. Do you see what he's saying? The gospel would cost Taylor and his family dearly. His wife died when she was 33 years old. Four of their eight kids died before the age of 10. His grueling work pace, his persistent poor health, his spiritual bouts with depression proved too much. In the year 1900, he had a complete mental and physical breakdown. He died just a few years later. The end of his life, on his deathbed, he was being interviewed by a reporter who asked him what the gospel had cost him. Mr. Taylor, would you talk to me about the sacrifice, how much you've given up? You lost your wife. You've lost four of your eight kids. You've lost all of your earthly possessions. You've lost your health, and now you're going to lose your life. Would you talk to me about the sacrifices you've made? Hudson Taylor famously replied by saying, I never made a sacrifice. Never made a sacrifice. You don't think that the Lord is going to repay me a thousandfold for what I've lost on this earth? Do you you see his eternal perspective? You don't think that the hope that I have, you think the hope that I have is going to disappoint? That I'm going to get to heaven and go, eh, it's okay. I mean, I guess if you like that kind of thing. John Piper has worded it this way. What he said was true. What Hudson Taylor said was true. For the compensations were so real and lasting to him that he came to see that giving up is actually receiving when one is dealing heart to heart with God. In other words, whatever we lose on this earth, no matter the sufferings, no matter the trials, whatever we lose on this earth, we gain back a thousandfold in eternity. It was Jim Elliott who said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And friends, you are no fool to hope because hope will not disappoint. Fourth, we have peace, we have access, we have hope. Fourth, we have the love of God. We have the love of God. What a benefit. Notice it says God's love. The the very end of verse five, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves us. Another good spot for an amen. Oh, how he loves us. The ultimate proof of that love was what? 
Do you guys see in verse 8? What was the proof of his love? God shows his love for us. God manifests his love for us in that while we were still sinners, was that Christ died for us. The ultimate proof of that love, of God's love for us, is Christ on the cross. If he didn't love us, would he have sent his son to die? He would not have, right? I mean, you guys all answered that in your heads, I hope. Said no. But in case you didn't know, he would not have. He loved his son, his only begotten son, his dear possession in his son, just like you guys love your kids. He loves his kid. And he's not going to send him for a people he doesn't love. And notice specifically, not just that Christ died for the ungodly, but verse 8 actually includes when Christ died for the ungodly. When did that happen? While we were doing what, verse 8? Sinning. It's not like he waited for us to repent before he sent Jesus. It's not like he just waited for us to be good, to clean our lives up, before he said, okay, I guess now I'll die for you. It's while people were shaking their fists at him. Now, remember that scene, uh, the foot of the cross. Man, he's up there. He is crucified. He is dying He's praying, he's suffering, and the people at the foot of the cross, minus a couple, his own mother, maybe the apostle John. But other than that, what were people doing? You have a picture in your head of what was going on? What were people doing? Were they applauding him, encouraging him, saying kind of, they were cursing him and spitting on him. You guys have read that? It's in the gospels. They spat at him. Uh, man, you guys, I don't know. You ever been spit on? We're a lot more careful with spit after 2020, right? We're a lot more aware of that now. But have you ever been spit on? Have you have you ever had somebody who, who I don't know what's going on or whatever, you strife between the two of you, and they come to you and intentionally, I don't just mean a little bit flies through the air, they spit accidentally when they're saying a word. I mean like hawks something up, they make that nasty sound, and they spit it on you. I, man, honestly, you guys, I might rather get punched. That is disgusting. That is a disgusting act. And that's what they were doing. As God is manifesting his love for us, what are we giving in return? Mockery, punches, spit. Man, does God love you? Yes, how do you know? Because Christ stayed on that cross. Even through all of that. And listen, friends, if you and I were there, if we were there, if we could have seen that, if we were there at the foot of the cross, don't make any mistake, we would not have been applauding and encouraging and saying kind words. We would have been there shaking our fists and yelling and mocking and spitting. Because that's who we are as humans. That's who we are. And yet God followed through with the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection anyway what a proof of love he loves us <laughs> oh how he loves us and let me ask are you living grounded in the love of god because those who are grounded in god's love are unshaken by the trials of the world they are unshaken by politics they are unshaken by poor economies they are unshaken by prospects of war because what else matters if god really is for me then who can be against me like children who just trust in their father because they know he's going to take care of everything. I am reminded of Billy Graham. Billy Graham who said this. He said, I've read the last page of the Bible and everything's going to be okay. 
Isn't that a great quote? I've read the last page of the Bible. And I'm telling you, everything's going to be okay. We have peace. We have access. We have hope. We have the love of God. Notice in verse 9, we have been saved by God from God. We have been saved by God from God. Look what it says in verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from what? The wrath of God. Isn't this a crazy thing? You would expect that to say, much more have we been saved by him from hell. That's not what he says. Much more shall we be saved by him from the devil. That's what you would expect it to say, but that's not what it says. What does it say? We have been saved by God from who? From God. <laughs> it was God's wrath that we had actually angered, that we had stirred up. It was God's condemnation that we were under. The scariest thing in the universe is not hell. The scariest thing in the universe is not the devil. The scariest thing in the universe is to fall into the hands of an angry and vengeful God. And apart from the blood of Jesus Christ, that's exactly where all of us would be. We were recipients of the wrath of Almighty God. And this says, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, God saved you from himself. He saved you from that wrath. Verse 10 continues, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. When people ask us about our testimonies and we tell them about how we got saved, we use that terminology, this is where we get that from. We were saved. Saved from, from what? We were saved from the wrath of God, which includes hell, the devil, the consequences of our sin, the eternal consequences of our sin, saved by his life. We were saved from his wrath. Notice finally, and with this we end, number six, we have been reconciled to God. In other words, we become his friends. What a benefit. Verse 11, more than that. That's a great way to start. Other translations may say, not only this, not only this, he's been stacking up, right? These five blessings so far. And as if those first weren't enough, peace and access and hope and love and save from his wrath as if those weren't enough. He says, not only that, even more than that, we have now received, it says, reconciliation. To be reconciled means to change a relational status from enmity to friendship. We are no longer his enemies. Now we are his sons and daughters. The verse literally says that those who have been justified have not only gained peace with God, but have become friends of God. Amen, church? Imagine this. He died for us while we were walking in rebellion and hatred against him. Right? If we had been witnesses of the crucifixion, we'd have been there spitting and mocking and shaking our fists just like everyone else. And not only did Christ choose to stay on the cross, he then put his arm around us and called us friend. What a benefit. One pastor worded it this way, every blessing a Christian has comes from Christ, every single one. And these six blessings, peace, access, hope, love, deliverance, reconciliation, bind us to Christ like links in a chain. They are the reason why the good news is so good. Ever wonder that? Why is the good news good? It's because of this. They are the reason we believe in Christ. They're the reason we're never turning our backs on him. 
Amen? We'd be turning our backs on all of those blessings from God. Allow me to pray. Lord, thank you for your word, which speaks so clearly, and thank you for the benefit that it is to know you. And Lord, would you make us a people who walk in the peace which you offer and who take advantage of the access that we have. We've been given that master key, the skeleton key to the presence of God, and we have hope, and it's a hope that does not disappoint, and we have love, love for one another and love for you. We have been delivered, saved from your wrath, and we have been reconciled, called your friends. And Lord, would you use those benefits to bind us to you for the remainder of our days and after this life into eternity, Lord. We love you and are so thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing one more song, and then when Adam is done, we're going to close our service, and then I'm going to give you guys an opportunity. I'm going to talk to you guys about the timeline that we're talking about and all of that, what's coming next. Uh, and when we're done, then you guys can ask any questions you guys would like.